Take your Bibles out, please. Open them to the book of Hebrews and the seventh chapter as we return to this passage. Join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, if you may, if you're able. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were, under, were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. It is far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a nulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we consider this truth that Christ has brought to us hope, that we would understand that in his coming, everything changed. God, make us aware of just how great the divide between life without Christ and life with Christ truly is. For that divide that marks the division of all of human history is the same divide that marks the living from the dead the lost, from the children of God. Father, let us be conscious of it and let us be mindful to always be carrying the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So ask somebody what Christmas is. And you'll get a story about a fat man in a red suit with a bag of toys. But the true story is so much better. This season, we're thinking about the coming of Christ and the bag of blessings that he brings. And today, we come to the promise fulfilled and paradoxically still coming of hope. Hope is the reality of what God says, being as real as if we held it already in our hands. It's the confirmation of promise that has been planted in our souls and that binds us to the God who gave it. Hope is the song Jesus' birth. It is the reality of God manifesting which has so long waited, but which still has parts unfinished in our sight. Hope is that lens of faith which allows us to rest easy in the arms of God, and all of this powerful truth came bound up in swaddling rags, given no place in the lives of men, and still he who was, and he is who he is, and in his coming, we find hope beyond all understanding. So I'm going to think with you this morning about the reality of hope. And to do that fairly, we have to understand that before Christ, before and outside of Christ, there is no hope. When, when man fell, what really was lost was any ability to relate to God. Yes, death entered in, and we all will die physically. And that's the part of the curse that we tend to focus on because it's the part that's most present to our minds. We can see it. We can touch it. We experience it. People that we love die, and they're no longer in our lives. But that's not the real consequence that matters most. What matters most is that man was cast out of the presence of God. What matters most is that the ability for man to commune with God, to relate to God, to engage with him in any way, was severed. And there is no path open for man to find God unless God himself opens it. Now what this means is that all of the religions of the world that will tell you we have the way of truth, if it does not follow the path that God himself ordained through the person of Jesus Christ, they are utterly without hope, no matter what they believe. 
No matter how earnest they are, no matter how honest they are in their intentions, no matter how sincere they are in their obedience, to try and find God apart from Christ is impossible. It is Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. So if you're going to revere Christ in any fashion, you have to deal with that statement. Did Jesus allow any room for there to be any hope outside of him? No, he didn't. He did not allow there to be any room for any hope of sincerity, any hope of attempt, any hope of good work, any hope of self-righteousness, any hope of religion, any hope of a church intervening on your behalf. Any hope apart from Christ is dead. And I would add to that the reality that any hope that says, I will do this and Christ is just as dead. Because any time you try to add to what God has done, you tell God what you have done is insufficient. So consider it in light of that. Would you be willing to stand in the presence of God and say to him, you know, I know you really tried with Jesus and you gave it your best shot, but it just wasn't enough and you really need me to finish the job. Anybody really want to say that to God? No, I didn't think so. You see, this is the reality. Man was separated from God in the fall. Genesis 3.24 says that God drove out the man, drove him out of his presence, drove him out of the garden, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It cut man off from the divine presence. Ephesians 2.12 says, At that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Apart from Christ, apart from God's working, apart from God calling and preparing, there is no hope. And mankind was trapped in a world gone mad, and it doesn't take much observation to realize we are still trapped in a world gone mad. We are condemned to toil, to strife, and to death, and apart from the working of God in us, there is no desire for God at all. Look at Romans 3 with me. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable, and there is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Does it sound like there is anybody on the planet who has any genuine desire to see God based in themselves? Any genuine desire to know God based of their own work and their own worth and their own abilities? No. The scripture is abundantly plain. And beloved, if we're going to carry the gospel, we have to carry the gospel that understands the reality of mankind apart from Christ. We cannot carry a wishy-washy gospel that says, well, I don't want to offend you, so I'll accept your beliefs as if they're valid. We don't need to be offensive about it, but we need to make sure that people hear the truth that anything apart from Christ will damn them because they are already condemned. It is not that they're going to do something one day that will put them under the wrath of God. They are born dead. They are born under the wrath of God. And this is the reality of every single person who enters life on this planet. It has been so since Adam. And it will be so until Christ returns. We are born hating God, hating His grace, hating His glory. We are determined above all else to do what we want in our own fashion, which is why there is such a plethora of religions on the planet. Because what we say is, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to walk in my own truth. And I'll, I'll establish how I'm going to come to you, God. You don't tell me what to do. I'm master of my own fate. 
I am captain of my own soul. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah 18, beginning at verse 5. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as with the potter? Says the Lord, look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull it down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster which I thought to bring upon it. And the instant that I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I had said I would bring it. Now therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone from his evil way. And make your ways and your doings good. And they said, this is hopeless. We'll walk according to our own plans. And we will everyone obey the dictates of his own evil heart. Beloved, that's us in a nutshell. God says, do what I say and you will find blessing. Walk contrary to my ways and you will experience correction. Turn now from your sin, and we go, nah, not really interested. I got a better plan. I'll do it my way. And there might be a song written in that somewhere. See, the problem is that when we talk to people about hope, we don't have it in a context that makes sense to them. The the word itself is something that doesn't even really make sense to them. Hope is not how the world defines it. They did not understand what their hope was. When God spoke to Israel and said, look, I'm going to correct you and it's going to hurt. I'm going to carve you out. I'm going to cast you down. I'm going to break you. So repent and turn to me. They looked at that and said, the idea of repentance is unpleasant. It means I have to stop the things that I'm doing, that I enjoy doing. I have to do the things that you tell me to do that I'm not really interested in or I'd be doing them already. And ultimately, I don't really care too much about what you care about, God. You see, their hope was in what they could have. Their hope was in what they could do. They didn't understand the context. They did not possess any real hope. Ask somebody out in the world what hope is. You're going to get one of two definitions, largely speaking. One is optimism. It's the Pollyanna. It's, it'll be better tomorrow, I promise, without any contrary, without, without any evidence, any substance. Just, it's just going to be good. And there are people like that, and I love them. <laughs> I'm not that guy, but there there are people like that. They're just always optimistic. They're always happy. They're always expecting good things. And they're always getting their teeth kicked down their throat because that's not life. But when you talk to somebody about hope, that's usually the, the definition that comes up. It's this person that's disconnected from reality, that's just bubbly, and they expect only good things, and they're so excited, and they're so disappointed. The other definition you'll get from the world is determination. It's what we saw in Barack Obama's presidential campaign, hope, right? Change. By my strength and by my hand, I will make things better. Well, he made things something. I don't know that I would call it better. But it's that idea that man can, by his own efforts, drag himself out of the bonds that he has found himself in. And you see, in the end, both of those definitions are contrary to truth. Because what hope actually is, is the certain promise of God. To put it as bluntly and as plainly as I can, hope is the sure and certain promise of God being pressed into our hearts. Psalm 119 verse 81 says, My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. Or Psalm 119 verse 49, Remember your word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. 
or God's promise to us in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So that hope is bound up in the coming of Christ. What God promised and what God delivered, he delivered through the person of Christ. In the coming of Christ, we have hope. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. Emmanuel is the heart of the promise. It is God restoring a relationship to himself. And if the reality of the curse is separation from God, then the substance of hope is being reunited unto him. If the reality of the curse is death, then the substance of hope is life. If the reality of the curse is pain and suffering and misery and toil, then the substance of hope is joy and laughter and light and and, and glory. It is the truth that what God promises us is a return to Him, which is the essence of every good thing. That's why James tells us that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. That there is nothing good that you have ever been given which did not come first and foremost from God. And that doesn't matter whether you are a saved person or a lost person. It is true across the board. Because God causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. Every lost person out there, every lost person who who is seeking their own pleasure right now, is doing so by the grace of God which grants them life and power to do even that. See, every good thing we have comes from God. And there is nothing which is desirable which is not bound up in His presence. And God has promised that He will come and restore us to Himself. So if we were separated from God by our sin, and God said, I will send a child and His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us, then in His coming, the substance of the world changed. Everything was altered. John described him as the one who had transformed the entire dynamic between us and God. You remember how John described him when he first saw him coming over the hill? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to remove that which separates us from God. And in that, we have hope. Beloved, understand this. This season of rejoicing in the coming of Christ, this season of remembering for Christmas and all the joyful things that it contains, it is absolutely void of any meaning if we do not concentrate on the coming of Christ and the hope that it brings. Because that is the power of Christ coming for us. It is hope. So let's talk a little more about what hope actually is. It is an unseen reality, not yet manifested. God tells us that we will one day be in his presence. Are we physically in his presence so we can see him yet? No. We are not. But we know that it's true. Romans 8, starting at verse 24, says this. We are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, it's important for us to note that this confident assurance is rooted and anchored in the promises of God. That the idea of hope having substance and having weight and having power doesn't stand if we try to separate it from God. It doesn't hold if we try to make it something that we can attain apart from God. Look at Isaiah 46 with me. Isaiah 46, starting at verse 9. And hear the voice of the Lord. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none like me. There is no other. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, 
the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, and I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will also do it. Upon what does God found the strength of his promise? Himself, right? Upon the strength of his own right arm, upon his own ability to keep his word. Look, if I promised you something like I say to you, this time tomorrow I'm going to put a million dollars in your bank account. I'll tell you right now, don't believe it. Because I don't have it to give you. It's not that I wouldn't if I had it, but I don't have it to give you. I can't. Now, you also have to ask yourself the question, would I really do it if I did? I don't know. Because I'm human, just like anybody else. And maybe my intention would be poor. But you see, with God, both of those things are resolved. We know that God never lies. He never speaks something he doesn't intend. And he is never found out by a lack of ability to fulfill his word. He is always able to do everything that he said he would do because, newsbreak, he's God. He's not impotent in any way. He is completely capable of fulfilling everything he ever set out to do, and he will fulfill it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us that he has fulfilled it. It says, In Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God in him are yes and amen. Every single word that God ever spoke, every single thing that God ever promised, is answered yes in Christ. And so what we find is that the foundation of our hope is rooted in the person of God. It's rooted in what we know about Him, both His power and His honesty. His intention towards us, which He tells us in His word, is love, and His determination to exalt His own glory. So what we know about God is what sustains us to rest in his hope. It's what gives our hope substance and power. You see, hope and faith, they're Siamese twins. They are conjoined realities that support and sustain one another. Hope and faith, they go hand in hand. You can't really separate them. And true hope always has in it an element of faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. So hope, biblically defined, is seeing the world as God sees it and being purposed to live as if God and what God has already promised is already present even though you cannot see it. So it's the idea that God tells us something and we take his promise as if we already hold the thing in our hand. We count on it. We know that what he has given is absolutely true. And ultimately, we need to recognize that hope is a living thing, and thus it is able to sustain us no matter what we face and no matter how difficult it might be. It is not static and brittle, but it is living and vibrant, and it is a resource for all of life in these insane days. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this not only tells us that our hope is living, but that the reason for our hope is rooted and established in Christ. It is grounded in who Christ is. It's grounded in his reality. It's grounded in his truth. It's grounded in the promise which both sent him and in the promise which he fulfilled. Jeremiah 17, 17 says, Do not be a terror to me, God. You are my hope in the day of doom. Amen? When the world is upside down and insane around us, the only hope we have is God. Psalm 31.23 says, O love the Lord, all you His saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful, and He fully replays the proud person. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Now what does hope require of us? Does it require anything? Pardon? Belief, Belief, right? Trust. Trust. It requires that we trust God. It requires that we believe what he says. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is the Lord. 
He shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads its roots out by the river. He will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding its fruit. So if we believe what God says, we trust him, we rely upon his word. In other words, we take what he says, regardless of what's coming in around us, and we do what God intends. When we rest ourselves upon him and trust in him in that way, then hope is a byproduct of that trust. It's something that is fed and nourished as we seek his face. As we delight in God and as we love him, hope is there. It is given to us by having confidence in the character of God. You see, I asserted that God does not ever lie and that God is never ever impotent. And I would encourage you to not take my word for that, but to instead rest in what the Scripture says. God reminds us that He is able to fulfill and that He does fulfill. And the experience of the church also gives us that truth. Lamentations chapter 3, starting at verse 25. Turn there if you would. Lamentations 3, beginning at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for the man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent. Let him, because God has laid it on him, excuse me, let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him. And be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. So if we trust him, and if we have confidence in his character, even when things don't make sense, our collective experience will teach us to have more hope each time this comes around. This is part of why the body is so crucially important. Because everybody in the body is going through the same types of things all the time. And you may not have experienced the thing that you're experiencing right now, but I promise you, somebody else in the body has. And they can come alongside you, and they can remind you of the faithfulness of God, and they can encourage you to walk in the way. And they can continue to aim you to Christ, which is really the main key. See, all of this, trust, confidence in the character of God, it's rooted in knowledge often. We have to know what God says. We have to know what he is. We have to know what he says about himself. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 16 and following says this, Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. I will wait upon the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I, and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. So Isaiah is saying, look, Have the testimonies, have the scriptures, bind them, hold them close. Because right now, God has got his back turned on us. He's hiding his face from us. He is not giving us the confidence of his blessing. He's not giving us the assurance of his presence. Things are not going the way we want them to. But we are the testimony of the Lord. We are for his testimony. And we will walk in the truth of what he has given to us. And we will hold fast for the day that he will deliver us. Because he has promised and he will do it. And what is it that Isaiah says we are supposed to cling to in that? The law and the testimonies. The truth of what God has said. You see, it feeds our souls when we read his word. It feeds our souls when we seek out his truth. But ultimately, many people seek after God in one form or another. But it is grace alone which allows us to have real hope. It is God's work in us. Because remember, if we read Romans 3, and we did, is anybody seeking God on their own? Is anybody doing what's right? Is anybody even wanting to really hope in God? No. They're wanting some semblance of God. They're wanting some fictional thing that they've created that they can manipulate, that they can order and they can do. But they don't want the God who is. The only thing that draws us to Him and the only thing that gives us any desire for Him is His grace working in us. 
2 Thessalonians 2.16 says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. He has given us good hope by grace. So God gives us this hope and he's given to us this reality that hope should change us. So does hope bring anything with it? I think it does. Hope is a powerful source of transformation in the lives of those who trust in God. It changes us from the inside out and it aids in the work of God to conform us into the image of Christ. It's consolation in all of our trials. We just read in Jeremiah 17. Um, again, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its root by the river. And he will not fear when the heat come, but his leaf will be green. And will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. This is a work of, of powerful change. This is a work which allows us to see God is faithful even when we don't see it particularly in the moment. Cling to him and find that he will bring about everything that he has promised. And it also transforms our character. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So our character, our very person, is transformed by hope. And it's transformed in the midst of the trials that if we had our way, we would be out of. It's transformed in the midst of the things that we wish we could change. But God has designed them to produce in us a deepening of our character and a production of our hope. All of these things are combined together by His grace to give us not only hope and peace, but also joy. We spoke about joy last week. Listen to Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look. If Christ is not risen, if we have hope only in this life, we are of all men to be pitied. Amen? So is our hope established only for this life? No. In fact, that's the smallest part of it, but it seems to be the part that we want the most. But I want to remind you that in the midst of hope, it is pointless for us to talk about hope without understanding what is really the context here. What's really the context of our hope is not only life with God now, but life with God in eternity for eternity. And Jared and I were talking yesterday, and he pointed out he's not going to be up there mechanicking. <laughs> he's not going to be up there haying. He's going to be up there glorifying God. And that is exactly right. That is exactly true. Because what is the promise that we all need most of all? It is the presence of God. Hope is the guarantee that God writes on our hearts that we will one day be accepted into his presence and that we will be made righteous, finally righteous. That's the substance of our hope. That's the heart of it. Galatians 5.5 says, Though we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.8 let those of us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. I found that compelling because the hope of salvation is a helmet, primarily because it guards our thoughts and it guards our minds. It defends us from the whispering lies of the deceiver. Amen? 
I mean, how many times is Satan whispering in your ear little things that aren't true and yet you cling to them like they are? He says, this is the reality. This is the truth. This is who you are. This is what you are. And all those things, they're just lies. We put on hope and it's the helmet. It's, it's that confident assurance. You know what? No matter what I've done, God is bigger. No matter what I've failed at, God is stronger. No matter what's gone wrong with me, God is able. And that is the truth of our hope. He will call us into his presence and he will not reject us for our sin. For our sin has been washed in the blood of Christ. It has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. You have nothing to contribute to that. You have nothing to add. You have only to trust in the Christ who is your everything. And we can simultaneously know what we are and know what we are becoming and be at peace with both in the process because God holds us in his hand. You see, hope is the promise of God of our internal, eternal inheritance in Christ. Titus 3.7 says, Having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. <coughs> Excuse me. So, what is it that hope does in us? Does it do anything? Or is it just this little ornament that we hang on the tree and look at once in a while? It changes us, doesn't it? It transforms us. It gives us power and glory. Because of its spiritual aspect, hope does some powerful things in us. Now, ironically... The first thing I want to point out is that hope actually imprisons us. Listen to how Zechariah puts it. Zechariah 9.12, it says, Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. What do I mean by hope imprisoning us? I mean that when hope is made real in our lives, though we may wander away, we will always come back. Remember what Peter said when Jesus said, do you guys want to go away too? Where, where else would I go? In, in that answer, there's sort of a, a helplessness. There's sort of a, I, I don't know. I don't have any other options. And hope builds that in us. Because hope is anchored in truth. You see, the, the options that we think we have, the, the ideas, I'm going to go over here and make my life better, a man runs off from his wife, because why? Because he thinks he's going to have it better someplace else. Any truth to that? Is he ever going to have it better? No. Because he is always his worst problem, and he will always take with him the problems that he caught us in the first marriage, or the second, or the seventh, or however many he's got now. Apart from the transformation of Christ, that is a repeating cycle. But God is merciful, and God is gracious. And the same thing is true when we look at all of the things in our lives. We are bound to truth, because God has enslaved us to his truth. We are slaves of righteousness, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6. Well, that means that though I wander away, and though I seek some other thing temporarily because I'm stupid, I will come back. Because I can't escape the hope. I can't escape the truth that I know is real. That's what John had in mind when he wrote in 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us, that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. See, there's this idea that those who wander away and never come back, never belonged in the first place. Because hope binds us to God. It, it imprisons us in his love. And it's, it, it is a beautiful thing. It also unites us together. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 15. And all the men in the church didn't know that there was anything in Ephesians 1 past verse 9, but there is. Verse 15 says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what is the substance of this hope that Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus? To know that by the grace of God, they are bound together in one flesh and bound together in the presence of Christ and they are the very body of Christ and that Christ is the head over all and that the union that unites us together is so profound, it can never be broken. And this is the hope of his coming. Not only unity with God, but also a restoration to true unity with one another. You'll hear a lot of talk in the world today about unity and equity and and inclusion and all of those things. And let me tell you the truth, they are all a lie. Because all they want to do is cause people to hate one another and to be forced to do something that there is no desire to do. Division is spread over and over and over. But what the gospel promises us is that God gives us love for one another. And he gives us a genuine inclusion in one another. And he gives us a heart for him which binds us together so profoundly that it will never be torn asunder. God gives us the real answer for inclusion. And it is him. And hope empowers us to live this way. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. Now track with me here. If the reality of our hope is based in the person of God and in his ability to keep his promises, and that reality is birthed in us and grows and flowers and bears fruit, what comes out of the reality that is connected to the person of God being our anchor and our security is the power of God being manifested in us as we live out the hope that he gave us. Does that make sense? He gives us through this hope the ability to cling to him, but he also gives to us in that hope the ability to follow and to obey and to fulfill his purposes. I know that many times we look at the world around us right now and we feel like nothing I do matters. There's no point, there's no substance, there's no ability, the world is going to heck in a handbasket and I don't care about any of it and I can't change it anyway and I just want to go hide in my cave. And I feel that way all the time. But hope says that in giving me his promises, God also gives me the power to live them out. And that as I follow his commands and walk in obedience to his will, just by being his, I'm changing things. Because Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Not you should be, but you are. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Not you ought to try to be, but you are. As the substance of what you are in Christ is manifesting itself in you, hope empowers that character, and it causes God's grace to be given to you and through you to the world around you. It empowers us to do what he tells us to do. It invites the people around us. It aids in our sanctification. 1 John 3, 3 says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he himself is pure. So this is both an encouragement and a rebuke. Because there are huge swaths of the church that will tell people, it doesn't matter that you live a holy life, just be happy. Love who you want, love how you want, Be what you want to be. Identify as you want to identify. Transform God's world. Just do whatever you want to do. It's all okay. We love you. Well, the truth is they don't love them because they are actively seeking to condemn them. But more than that, that that whole dynamic denies the reality that if we have hope in Christ, we want to be like him. We want to be pure. We want to be clean. We want to be holy. 
We want to be purified according to his grace so that our lives bring him honor. That's the desire of every person who has been transformed by the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we get that perfect ever, but it should be the goal. It should be the target. It should be the thing at which we aim. And when we get this right, hope becomes an invitation. It becomes something that people will be drawn to. Listen to how Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now I'm going to confess to you my own inadequacy. Because while I may be a little proactive in approaching people, I haven't had this happen too often. Where they come to me and say, what's the reason for the difference in you? It must mean that I'm not as different as I need to be. (laughs) But I know this. Even right here in this place, there are many that that is always the question in my mind. I see you and I think to myself, wow, how cool is it that God is making them like he is? And you are light and you are salt and you are glory and you are grace. And you are the very things that God is using to transform this world. And at the heart of all of that is this reality that hope being manifested in you becomes a sweet and precious invitation to others who may be wondering but are afraid to ask the mean, scary pastor. But they'll come to you. And they'll ask you their questions. And the main question they're going to ask you is this. Why are you so different? Why are you not like me? What makes you tick? And understand this. That is an invitation to the gospel. Because what makes you tick is Christ. It is the hope of God being born in you and manifesting itself out through your life. Hope emboldens. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says this, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. So, I just buttered you up on one side. I'm going to smack you on the other. I want you to understand this. Sometimes you're afraid to answer when they ask questions. Sometimes you're scared of what they might say or what they might think. Beloved, understand this. The outflow of hope is boldness. And God will give you boldness. Open your mouth and see what happens. Amen? Amen. Put down your ice cream and open your mouth and see what happens. And watch God do a work through you that you didn't think he could do. Amen? It's a profound and beautiful thing. And it's a lesson we all have to learn. We all have to be engaged with him. Because in the end, God not only emboldens us, but he sends us. Look at Philippians chapter 1, and we'll end here. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 19. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, there it is again, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, I'm going to finish the passage, but I want to draw your attention to what he just said there. If I live, it will mean fruit. Do you understand that? It's going to mean fruit. Why? Because God always accomplishes his purpose. This is what hope is. It is God accomplishing his purpose. And you just don't see it yet. But it's there. And it's real, and it's profound, and it's beautiful. It will mean fruit from your labor. It will mean that God accomplishes in you and through you what he said he was going to do. 
For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better for me. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. You see, Paul was contemplating his own death, contemplating whether or not he would die in that Roman prison where he was writing this letter from. And what he says is, you know, I really don't care. Live or die, it's all the same to me. If I die, I get to see Christ, which is always much better. But if I live, then the gospel will continue to be preached because as long as there's breath in my body, I'm going to speak of my Jesus. But do you notice that his ambiguity about his own life is not a hopeless thing, but a hopeful one? So many times we, we, we feel like, I just don't even want to be here anymore. And we feel that way because here is hard. But that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what he's getting at. He's getting at the reality that, yes, here is hard, but that doesn't matter. There is better, but here there is still fruit from my labor. And at the end of it all, our calling is to be that Dynamic power of the gospel in the midst of this place. Do you know how I know that God has called you to carry the gospel to Onega, Kansas? Because this is where you are. If he called you to carry it someplace else, you'd be there. Now, it doesn't mean he might call you someplace else later. I hope he doesn't. I love you all and want to keep you forever. But the point is, he's called you here because you're here. And wherever you are, There you are. You are called to be the light and the glory of the gospel of Christ with everything that you have in you. And because of the hope that's been given to us in him, you can be. See, when Christ came, he changed it all. And he made us able to be the very presence of Christ in a lost and dying world. Let's carry that this season. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us see the hope that's ours in Christ. I pray, God, that you would transform us into the likeness of his glory, and that you would teach us to love and to honor him above everything else. God, help us abandon the things that keep us back, and help us strive with all that we are for those things that are still ahead. Amos, it's you. In Jesus' name, amen.